A lot going on in our city, a lot going on in our church. How many of you ran the marathon yesterday? Any of you half marathon people, crazy people doing this? And one, two, way to go. Congratulations. I heard our softball team won this last week. I heard that's kind of a big thing when that happens. So, yeah, good job, team. Yeah. Isn't it good to be sending out these kids? Oh, kids, because they're so much younger than me. These kids all over the world last week. here to Berlin to minister there. I was talking to Kirk Christie yesterday on Zoom. And what a great thing. Who are these crazy young people serving Jesus going all over the world? Like, this is awesome. And King Jesus is worth it. He's worth our, our lives. And uh, we got a lot of teams going out this next few months here. We got a Japan team. We got a Croatia team. And I can understand we got 34 going to Guatemala. Check that out. And they're going to have some fun this afternoon, I guess. They're going to kind of combine seriousness with like, a lot of fun and do biking and swimming and, and, and what else. So it's a good day. Like, last week I was in, last weekend I was in Oregon with my kids. And uh, in a wonderful church. Felt like this one. And uh, a little bigger than this. And, and my son made me the parking lot attendant. I kind of put on a yellow vest. I was giving a walkie-talkie. I felt powerful. And so we were like, and it's pouring down rain. It's Oregon, right? Dumping buckets of rain, and we're out there getting soaked, and people are waving and saying thanks. And like, it was like, cool. I was like, man, I think that might be my calling. Maybe you were willing to, like, preach? I, like, maybe that's parking lot. I loved it. It was fun. But it reminded me that serving is fun, right? Let's find, let's all find our place. I'm ready to do that. If that slot opens up here at Risen Life, so let's, uh, let's get there before me, right? A lot of things. Hospitality, greeting, security, children, like a lot of tons of stuff to do. So let's find a place where we want to be. But we're, we're in Ecclesiastes, and this is a great book. And it's a hard book. It's a hard book to understand. And, and Solomon has, has written this book of Ecclesiastes, and, and working at the question, how do I find meaning in life, right? And he went, wrestles with this question really deeply. I mean, he really goes after it. I mean, we're going to look at this thing, 12 chapters worth here over the next few weeks, and he just goes after, turn over, turns every rock just to look at, at this question, and he begins in chapter 1, uh, verse 2, Pastor Jared uh, taught this last week, but he says, all is vanity, and the word vanity means breath or, or meaningless, emptiness, um, transitory, unsatisfying. And this is how he felt as he looked at life on planet Earth. But he wasn't content to stay there. He knew there must be something more. And, and so he goes on this search now over the several chapters of this book to try to find satisfaction and meaning and things substantive and lasting. We see this in verse 8. Where it says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. And the eye is not satisfied. Well, he wanted to change that. Like, he wanted to find, where is there satisfaction in life? And he describes this sense of meaninglessness, this term under the sun, which is a description of how life feels when our eyes are exclusively on earth, only under the sun. To look at life under the curse of sin, the pain and the futility and the death that we experience before one sits.
seriously consider the transcendent. Because we're going to see, like this is our message, we're going to keep, Jared and I will just keep coming back to it. There's a transcendent God that is above the sun. That, that's what we got to see. And he not only is above the sun and transcendent, but he is imminent and he is here with us. To walk with us as we walk in earth. And so this feeling of meaninglessness, which we all have from time to time, is meant to stir our hearts to search for something more, like Solomon does in this book. So today we're going to look at three things. Um, that Solomon takes this grand experiment kind of to an extreme today, and then he comes to this very grievous, he, he has a lot, does a lot of grief in this book, but he comes to this very grievous conclusion. And then takes this big turn at the end and commends to us a path filled with wisdom and, and joy. So let's look at chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes here um, this morning. Start with verse 1. He kind of summarizes the whole thing. We can almost just say this verse and call it good, but a lot to say here. I said it in my heart, come now, I will test you. There's the experiment. I'm going to do an experiment. I will test you with pleasure. Just enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity or meaningless. So in his pursuit of meaning and his pursuit of satisfaction, he undertakes this project of bringing himself endless pleasure. And he had the resources to pull it off, both good and bad, I want you to know. He didn't try to stay with any bad guidelines here. We're going to see this. He just went for it all. Some good, some bad, but unrestricted, unabated pursuit of pleasure. Sounds good. And I'm like kind of with the adults, like I, I would give this a shot, I think. So, so this is our heart, though. This, and the reason we even say that is our heart wants satisfaction. It wants meaning. It wants pleasure, doesn't it? Our hearts scream for it. And I want to say this is not a bad pursuit, actually, in itself. It really isn't. Because God appeals to it continuously. He reminds us in Psalm 16:11 that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore, he says. And Jesus speaks like this. He speaks of gain and profit and finding life. And in Matthew 16, 25 and 26, he says, if you save your life, you're going to lose it. Do something that brings you life. If you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. What profit, speaking to us like Americans, what profit is there to gain the whole world to lose your soul? Do what brings profit. Do what brings gain. Seek pleasure. C.S. Lewis famously writes, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Pursuit of pleasure is not bad. We just do all the wrong things. And so we're going to look at Solomon here who gives this unabated pursuit of pleasure in every direction, every corner, turn over every rock you can possibly find. And let's look at this. It's quite a fascinating text to read. Let's look at verse 2 now through verse 10. He said, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, 
What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom. Now look at he 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 does he does this experiment, but he's kind of keeping data, right? He's writing it down like a science textbook. He's, he has his mind about him as he's doing this. He's doing this very deliberately, even though sometimes it's not healthy or good. He goes, and how do I hold of hold on folly? See, so he chooses folly and foolish things along the way, till I might see what was good for the children of man to under the heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. And I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. and had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. All my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was the reward for all my oil. Wow. That's quite a text. Is <laughs> it not? The richest man in the world said, I'm going to withhold nothing from myself. <clears throat> now, now, here's the challenge, I think, Americans. We can do a lot more of this than we think we can. <laughs> well, let's think about this just for a moment. I think the wine and food options that we have today here in America would stun and stagger and solve it. Do you think about this, right? I, I, we visit New York, as I mentioned with my kids, and I said, okay, we're here for a week. We will take you out to dinner every night at a place of your choice, and we will buy. You just tell us where it is. And I, I told them, like, this is the craziest thing. There's a family, we can do this and afford to do this, we thought. We <laughs> got hurt, man. But we can do this as Americans, like any food in the city, any type, whatever you want, whatever the cost, you name it, we're doing it here this week. Tough a little song of ass, right? In our city, we have some of the great arts, really, not only in our country, but in the world. The dancers and the singers spoken of by Solomon are amazing. If you've been to our ballet, our plays of any type in the city, they're fabulous. And I'm going to say this, the conveniences and the amenities that we have in our homes <laughs> put Solomon to shame. Now they may not be as big as Solomon, but all some of our houses are pretty big, but they are something Solomon would be jealous. Imagine what Solomon would do with the high tech of today in his house, right? Solomon famously in 1 Kings 11 says he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. But I want to say that in some ways that pales to the sexual exploits that are available to us on the internet today. Endless sexual pleasure as it would be. And us Americans are famous for our large bank accounts. Right? One of the kids mentioned Bill Gates. You know, 
the 70s, when we were in our college years, Bill Gates and I, I didn't know him by the way, Bill Gates and I stood in the same line at the same computer system together working at computer technology. I was an engineering student there, and he was just doing experimenting with computers there. And, and, and ironically, he and his, and his buddy, Paul Allen, got thrown out of there for bad behavior. This is a true story. But what happened to me? Like, like I, I drive, you can vote by on Lake Washington, Bill Gates' house. And it looks a lot different than my little cottage that I live in. Like, where did I go wrong with all this? I think that's how we sometimes feel. If we're honest, we kind of want to give this a shot. That's what Americans do. And this is why Solomon is writing this for us and why God puts it in the scriptures. Because he wants us to see the results. Because at the end of the day, verse 11, it says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, meaningless, striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So, Solomon says, now look, look at the results, and see where this ended. I gave this a shot, and it was meaningless. I mean, scripture asks us, this is what wisdom is, I think. Trace it out. Look at what this conduct and action and path where it takes you. This is what wisdom is. And, and wisdom traces these things out for us. The pursuit of wealth above all things. It says in 1 Timothy 6.10 that when people loved wealth and craved money, right, hungered for it, it pierced themselves with many pains. Just listen to it. That's what Solomon's saying. Proverbs 5, the promiscuous woman, father telling his son, don't chase her down. Because at the end of your life, you will groan and your body will be consumed. That's grievous. And good wisdom. So Solomon always will conclude over and over again at the very end of the book saying, we are to fear God and to keep his commandments. We are to do it God's way from the beginning to save ourselves a lot of things. So young people, find yourself some older people that have made all these mistakes. <laughs> and ask them the hard question. What mistakes did you make? Make them squirm. Ask it of your parents. What mistakes did you make? What did you learn? They need to tell you so you don't do it. Don't do what they did. We need to pair up, older and younger, this is what the Bible tells us to do, older women, younger women, older men, younger men, to learn from each other. It's inspiring to be with young people, but ask the questions. Find wisdom. Listen to them. Because we all have a choice, right? To hear God's voice, the voice of our parents and mentors, mentors or to give it a shot for ourselves. And I know so many, I'm a little this way myself, those hard-headed people, we just got to test it out for ourselves you got to know that if you do that, you might not ever come back. And the consequences of your life might be just heartbreaking. 
But it will leave deep wounds in your soul. You will be scarred. And yes, there is forgiveness in Jesus. And yes, there is redemption. There always is available. But the wounding goes with you your whole life through. And you can avoid it by hearing what Solomon is saying. And those who have gone before you are saying. So this is why Solomon warns us. Now, he comes to some really grievous conclusions. <clears throat> he really starts to tease this out a bit more in verses 12 and 23. <clears throat> he says, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Right? Only what has already been done. So in other words, are you going to listen? Solomon says, are you going to listen to me? Those of you who are falling behind me, right? Are you going to do what I did? Or are you going to learn? This is his question. Reminding us that it didn't satisfy. But he does admit, and, and this is the scary part of it. He does admit, in verse 10, we just read it, that there are some pleasures and rewards along the way. That there is enough there to keep us and tease us and to continue to draw us in. But he says, as I sought pleasure, I tried both wisdom and moral actions and immoral actions. Look at verse 13. He says, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in life than in darkness. He's, he's testing out both sides of this. See? The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. I want you to see that as he went for pleasure in every way, he said the best pleasures were pleasures that were wise choices. There's a lot of pleasure to be had in wisdom, but he also said there was wisdom, I mean there was, there was pleasure in folly, but the better one was the pleasures found in wisdom. I, I think this is interesting. And I think it's interesting as we think about America. Some of the blessings that we continue to experience in America today have its root in our Judeo-Christian ethic. Because we were people that were smart enough in some cases to do moral things as God's word instructed us. And we reap some of the benefits of that. That's what Paul is saying. Psalm is saying that there is two types of pleasure seeking, but one is better than the other. And maybe you've heard this. I've got some friends who have become atheists. It seems to become a popular thing these days. And have you heard this? I had a really good friend of mine, neighbor, look across the street, say to me, you know, I'm a, I'm a moral atheist. Right? And that's kind of what Saul is saying. It's better to be a, a moral atheist than a foolish one. <laughs> so Solomon says, look at even being a, a moral person, doing the pursuit of pleasure wisely doesn't solve the problem. So he's working at it. Look at verse 15. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Okay? So the same thing happens to the wise guy or the foolish guy. Why then have I been so wise? And I said in my heart, this is also vanity. For the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. 
So he gets very frustrated because to live in the pursuit of pleasure wisely doesn't get him any more of an advantage than to do it just foolishly. Because everybody's going to die. Psalm 49.10 says this, that the fool and the wise die. The rich and the poor, they die. Everyone dies. And so what advantages they're doing in any particular way? This is what he's arguing for. My daughter-in-law is Kayla, who is a hospice nurse. And she says, it is profound to me, Kevin, that in the same day, I will go to a, a trailer court, people impoverished, and administer drugs that make death better, without pain, make sure they're loved and cared for, make sure the steps that are taken to make sure their death as as good as possible, and then I'll go to a mansion just down, an hour or two down the road, and do the exact same thing with the exact same result. know this. Death is this great equalizer. And Solomon is so troubled by this. He says there's a couple things that happen. We just read it in verse 15 to 16. He says everything that you do will be forgotten in time. But also in verse 18 and 19 he says your hard work's going to be passed on to someone who didn't do the work. <laughs> and that's grievous. And, and Solomon I mean if he, had, if he had stayed alive to watch what happened, he hands the kingdom off to his son Rehoboam. And he was a fool, and he broke the kingdom up, and he did stupid stuff, and was a bad ruler, and this is what happened to him. And so Solomon is asking, why do we even care about any of this? Why does it even matter? Because death's just going to ruin it all. Everything gets taken away. It feels just like a lot of wasted effort. Right? And I think we can relate to this at some level. Right? Death is always just kind of pressing in on us. The way I feel is it's like the sand is like slipping. Time's like slipping through my fingers like sand. That's why Psalmist says rejoice in every day you've been given. 11, chapter 11, verse 8. Like, like make every day count. My father passed away at age 65 of cancer. scary close. It presses on me this year. This is the year he got diagnosed. And time with my wife feels more precious but more fleeting. And time with my grandchildren feels more precious but more fleeting. And time at work feels more precious and more fleeting. Because I'm like months away from when my father died. It grips me. A few years ago, we bought a little dog, a little pug named Nutmeg. That wasn't my name. We just got her, and I, I took her for a little walk around Sugar House Park. And here comes a guy with another pug. And he comes up, and he goes, oh, you like pugs? Well, I just got this pug, like, give it to us. <laughs> he goes, my pug's 18 years old. They live forever. <laughs> and I looked at my age, and I added 18 onto that. <laughs> pug, pug, I'm going to outlive me. <laughs>
6. <clears throat> this is Solomon's commendation, a wise and joy-filled path. <clears throat> there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? Most scholars see this as a turning point in this whole book, um, where he begins now to bring God in a real serious way into the picture and, and asks us to look up above the sun. Right? Just, don't just keep your eyes below the sun, under the sun, but look up above the sun. And I want us to see what he's commending for us. These are really, really important things, especially as we talk about all these pleasures and how Solomon got in trouble with them. But he says something quite different here. And he says, there's nothing better than enjoying drink and enjoying your life in the middle of this hard world that we live in. And this is from the hand of God. He is the one who gives it to us. And so I want us to take this as hard to heart, people, Christians. Like nobody, nobody should enjoy earth as much as we do. We should enjoy it. And he reminds us of this. That we are to be people that look like, look at the city we live in. Do you realize how blessed we are to live here in Utah? Have you ever lived in Nebraska? Come on. We got out of the land of Egypt. Some of my Nebraska friends are watching. I'm sure I'm sorry. First Timothy six seventeen says, "Everything was created by God for our enjoyment." Now he reminds us that we're to do everything for the glory of God. First Corinthians ten thirty one, right? So this is not a license to do what Solomon did. We're to do everything for the glory of God, which means to do everything for His praise, or to do everything with a rejoicing heart. It's the same thing, but the way you do it is to do it for Him, to enjoy life in God's creation. This honors Him. He made it for us to enjoy. Psalm 104, verses 12 to 15 says, The birds and the mountains, food and work and wine were made to gladden the hearts of men. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice. And I used to say and play golf in it, you know. But be glad. But the key, and this is so important, because this is where the dividing line between what Solomon did and what we are to do. <clears throat> Verse 26, for the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. <clears throat> we're to please him. In other words, we're to take all the things in creation and we're to submit them to him and his instructions. We're to obey him with what we've been given. We're to obey him with our money. We're to obey him with our families. We're to obey him with our jobs. We're to obey him with our healthy bodies. We're to obey him with our sexuality. This is what is this is the path of joy. It's to do it his way. The one who pleases God will walk, it says here, in wisdom and in joy. But we gotta do it his way. The converse also says, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases 
God and Solomon says that is meaningless in a striving after the wind. What burdened Solomon's heart, what burdened him so much, is there was another side of this equation that those who gave themselves to do whatever they wanted without thinking about what God might say will end up in a place that has no meaning. And this grieved him deeply. In fact, to me, it's the most grievous thing on earth. Think of those who reject God and reject Jesus. And this is all they've got. That is the most grievous thing I know. That it's the hardest thing for me to deal with in my life. That there is an end to those that reject God. And God says, okay, yeah, way. So the question is this morning, I think, how do we please God to close this chapter? How do we... How do we really please him? John 3.36 paints the picture of these two people that John here has just painted. And he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. They live forever. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God. God speaking truth to us, Jesus speaking truth to us. So, so how do we please God? And this verse tells us it's to believe in Him, it's to believe in the Son. First John tells us that the work we are to do above all work is to believe in His Son, to trust in Him, to trust what He did for us on the cross, to trust that He paid the penalty for our misdeeds, to give our life to Him and to surrender ourselves to Him as Lord. He is the one who is King Jesus, and to give our life to Him. And that when we believe and we trust in Him, trust what He did, and give our lives to Him, the Bible says we are saved, we're given eternal life. Hebrews 10.14 says it this way, For by one, one single offering He has perfected for all those who are being sanctified. That when we believe in Jesus, we are made perfect before our good God. And then he sanctifies us to become, in actuality, what we've been given. And if we are perfect before God, guess what? We are pleasing to him. You want to be pleasing to God? You accept Jesus, receive his righteousness, and you will be fully pleasing to him. Remember the transfiguration when the father saw his son being glorified. <clears throat> the father, with great exuberance, pours out in the scriptures, Matthew 17, 5, he says, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And guess what? If you're in Jesus, he is equally pleased with you. That's how you become pleasing to God. You give your life to his son, Ben, you can come on up. And prayer team, you can gather if you'd like around the worship center. <clears throat> So, this is the good news, right? The good news of the gospel. When I am fully pleasing to him, this is the hope. And I walk this world, and I walk this earth, which is so broken, and so fallen, and so full of pain, and struggle, and suffering. And I try my best to be pleasing in my actions, and fail every day, after day, after day, right? 
this text tells me that I am fully pleasing to God. All my best and imperfect deeds are perfect in Jesus Christ. Isn't that a relief? That is a grace. It is a blessing. Right? My best efforts at work, my best efforts at friendships, my best efforts at parenting and marriage, which fall short, are perfect in Jesus. Fully accepted, right? When I'm having that day where I'm facing my failures and I'm facing criticism, when I've preached and I feel like I didn't do very good and I go home and I lay down on my bed and go, oh, Kevin, what in the world are you doing? I have those days. You do too in your work. I have despairing thoughts like we see in Solomon. Nights when I wake up. I feel like a failure. I say like Solomon said, I just hate life. Great pleasure of knowing Jesus Christ. 